listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hey folks, welcome back to the Making Data Simple series. This is now on IBM Big Data Hub. It's on SoundCloud, YouTube, and also under iTunes, under the Analytics Insights Podcast. This is a series under that podcast. But in reality, as always, we talk about everything. And the cool thing is I'm the host, so we can go wherever I want to go. So this is terrific. Today, we have a session by the name of the future of agriculture. So I live in the beautiful state of Kansas, flyover state for many of those on the east and west coast, which suits me just fine. But uh, I'm sure you think we're all farmers. I'm not. In fact, I'm ignorant about farming. If you're counting on me to physically put food on the table, we're in trouble. So the good news is I respect the farming community and I have an agriculture expert today. And that is Jason Taji, who is the CEO and and co-founder of Farm Mobile, which is a farm data company. I like the data part, but uh, I'll jump right in. How are you, man? How are you doing? I'm I'm really good. How are you? And I appreciate that you don't try to um, grow your own food and you outsource it to the professionals that are capable. (laughs) Yes. I'm very good at eating, though, if, if you were wondering. So, look, um, I will I will let you introduce yourself. I know okay. you've got a, a long history, a long background, so let's let's go ahead and start there. Tell, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, so I'm first generation removed from the farm. Um, parents both grew up in southern Minnesota, um, spent a lot of weekends and summers on the farm, um, learned a lot about all the aspects and all the work that goes into uh, working on a farm. Uh, was the first one to go to college, and my grandfather always said that uh, you should figure out how to do something that doesn't require you to be a farmer because we take all this risk. And the people that make all the money are the people in Chicago that uh, trade this stuff and they don't even know what it looks like. And so I heard that long enough and I started to believe that was true. So I got a financial economics degree from a college called Gustavus Adolphus College in Southern Minnesota. And uh, I got a job trading commodities with the Pillsbury Company out of school uh, in the Minneapolis Grain Exchange. And uh, really that, that's where it all started for me in the, in the commodity side of things. I've uh, been involved in that and I, and the commodity trade aspect of the business for 22 years um, with various companies of uh, traded corn, beans, wheat, cotton, um, then started a company on my own called Farms Technology, which used, tech, which used technology to really help farmers market grain um, using, it was web at first, and then we moved it into smartphones um, 2008 and nine, and uh, that company was acquired by DuPont Pioneer in December of 2012. And then I had a non-compete, and uh, I got this idea that if we could figure out a way to collect data from the machines, the farm machines, as they were operating in real time, and aggregate it, and figure out a way to package it and get it to the market, we could help reduce the volatility in the futures market. And that's really what farmers want, and that's really what the buyers want, no matter if it's an ethanol plant or a feed mill um, or, or a manufacturer. So that was the concept. I knew nothing about IoT. Um, I assumed that all of the major manufacturers would have API feeds that I could just plug into and uh, and help collect and organize this data. I realized about a year into it that most of the OEMs didn't yet have a system that was capable of sending up the data that we wanted to collect. So uh, contracted with a with a firm and we built a, an IoT device with a cellular modem in it uh, that plugs into the tractor, kind of like the OBD2 port is in a car, but uh, it's one that is in most of the cabs of modern farm equipment that's really 2002-ish and newer. And uh, from there, uh, it took 90 days to build the first device, and it's taken about four years for us to, to really make it a, a world-class data collection device. 
Nice. All right, so I got a ton of questions already in there, so hold on. Yep. Let's back up. Let's rewind. Uh, generations of farming. Yep. You watched it. You learned it. You d identified all the opportunities and decided to take advantage of those opportunities. But you started as a commodity trader. So yeah. you're trading futures at that time? Correct. Cash and futures. So cash is the physical Cash is what we call the physical delivery, but a lot of times you hedge it with futures to uh, to offset the risk. But yeah, trading both physical delivery grain and futures. So I guess you weren't the Warren Buffett of commodity trading, though, because then you went into technology, huh? That's exactly right. <laughs> well, you must have done pretty well, though, right? Uh, did well enough to start my uh, own company and, and uh, you know, so started that last one. Had that one for 11 years, actually, um, and only had one outside investment in that one. So you founded Farms Technology. Yes, you, that, was, that was in 2002. So how, how does that come about? You work with some buddies, you look at it, you say, look, this is an opportunity, or you just do it by yourself? I mean, how did you get into that? Yeah, it came about, I just wanted to, I couldn't see myself trading commodities using the phone the way that we were doing it um, in the future. I couldn't see myself 10 years. I couldn't see that business not changing. This is 2002. So, you know, the, the dot-com boom and bust had, had come and gone, and a lot of people were kind of, you know, I'd say, you know, down on technology, especially its massive impacts, because everyone anticipated with the, the dot-com kind of burst that technology was over. And I think it's really interesting that a lot of those companies still exist today, not a lot, but the ones that do are really powerful names that we all know. You know, eBay was a pre-dot-com boom. And, and so I think when you look back at some of those big companies that are still there, I think in the short term, the, the technology aspect of the, the business world changing was underestimated. But I think since then, you know, when you look at 15 years later, I think it's it's really probably exceeded expectations in ways that no one could anticipate. So you did that for a while. You got to explain in layman's terms what it means when you say an electronic marketplace to automate grain transaction risk management. Yep. Okay. So in my old job, what would happen is farmers would call me and ask me for the price of grain. There was no centralized, the, the Chicago Board of Trade establishes a price for grain, which is a futures price. And then when you sit at a physical location, you subtract or add a basis amount. So let's say that the futures market is trading at $4 and I'm in Kansas City and I'm 25 under, I would say my cash price, so my price for the farmer to drive his truck to me today is $3.75. So that farmer might call me 10 times a day and he'd get a different price every time because it's simply futures plus or minus uh, basis value. And since the futures market is always changing, so is the, the value of the, of the grain. So what we did is we set up a company that said, if the farmer just tells me where he wants to market his grain, think of it as almost a limit order in stock, right? I want to sell 5,000 bushels when the market gets to, let's say, 380. What we would do is we would watch every um, tick of the futures market, and when we had futures minus basis that equaled that price, we would automatically create a contract between the farmer and the buyer, and then we would sell an equal amount of futures contracts to offset the risk and give those to the buying entity, which is exactly what a commodity trader does. We just automated the process of it and uh, made it much more scalable. So you took what you learned as a commodities trader, automated it, and then gave the uh, empowered the farmer. Empowered the market in general because you know the futures market nobody controls that. The buyer was able to get what they wanted. The the farmer was able to get what they wanted, and we used 
the volatility in the futures market to bring those two together. They both speak different languages. And when we were able to use technology to bring those two together, um, it was a win-win. Now, are you a technologist? I mean, did you know exactly what you wanted to do from a technology standpoint, or did you come with the the idea and then formulate the uh, technology and get the expertise around you to make it so? Yeah, I've been super blessed with, um, I've had the vision. I've almost served at certain points in my career as an architect. I had a, a completely mapped out um, massive spreadsheet on how I wanted everything to work um, to, as a building block to start from, and then been heavily involved in the business logic that's been incorporated into the, the various platforms that we've built along the way. I'm further away from it now than I was in my first startup. You know, this one, this one, we've got a little bit more funding and we've got real professionals doing it, which allows us to move quite a bit quicker. So did you code on the first, first startup? I did not. I did not. So you're I the visionary guy. I tested a lot. <laughs> you tested was, to make sure everybody was coding accurately. I got it. <laughs> I was the one that got called in the middle of the night when it wasn't working and made sure everybody could figure out what was wrong. Nice. So you, you sell in 2012, you get rich, and then you get bored, and you think, you go back to your visionary ways, and you come up with far mobile. Yeah, yeah, Something rich, like rich is a relative term. Um, I had an exit. <laughs> um, I, I, I didn't have to worry about making payroll for a little while, so I, I told my wife, well, we agreed that I was going to take a year off, and I made it about three, three months, maybe. Well, you almost, well, three months, that's, that's not bad. And you had a vision of, of getting a year off. I don't have that vision any time in my near future. <laughs> I don't anymore either. <laughs> so then you then that brings us to Farm Mobile. So you're working to help farmers take advantage of the data generated by their equipment. So I got a ton of questions in here. It would seem like it seemed like a lot of people would be interested in this space. I mean, in other words, a lot of people would be here, but you seem like you're the first person that's really doing this. Um, I mean, so I don't know. Can, can you talk about that? I mean, sure. why is it? It sounds like that you know something that everybody else doesn't, or they can't figure out how to get it done the way you've done it. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of both. Um, the from um, an OEM perspective, well, I'll say it like this: back in the day when when we were kids, right? When you bought a car, you would. I mean, the cool thing to do is to get a new stereo, right? Because the ones that come from the factory are awful. And so, I think. That is really how most of the OEMs have treated electronics inside the cab as something that they put in there, but it's not of, of very good quality. Um, so there's an opportunity for aftermarket companies to come in and, and put in advanced technology that's a little bit better at collecting data on machines. Um, and these companies are really technology-first companies, not equipment-first technologies. So there's a um, there's an opportunity for an aftermarket solution to come in and plug in to these things. Uh, one of the biggest challenges is the ability to work in uh, low bandwidth environments. The cellular coverage in rural America is not very good, um, and there's no there's no um, Verizon or Sprint guy out there um, in the middle of a field asking if you can hear me now. So. We've got a lot of gaps in cell coverage, and that was one of the major engineering challenges that my team was able to solve, was figuring out a way to stream data from the cab of equipment um, instead of trying to set up a big file. And when I say a big file, 
when a farmer goes out, let's say a farmer goes out today and he decides to plant 80 acres, uh, a field that's 80 acres, there's an onboard computer that records the data if you hit start and then you, you do your work and eight hours later you hit stop. And what it'll do is it'll take all of these messages in that onboard computer and convert them into an export file. And that export file now mainly is um, put onto a thumb drive and literally that's the way I'm going to say 90 plus percent of the farm data that's collected today is still using that thumb drive. And so what John Deere introduced some wireless data transfer capabilities where instead of putting that data on that thumb drive, you could take that file that was generated after you finished a job and you could send it up using an in-cab modem. The problem was that we had pretty large file sizes and we had a really small pipe and it was inconsistent at that. So a lot of times when the machines would be driving back to the, the shop, let's say, after work, um, you would hop a couple towers and the file would get cor corrupted before it made it to the other side. So that was the engineering challenge that we said, well, if we look at it like Netflix and we were able to stream little bits of this data and then when we lost cellular connectivity, we can just store those little bits of data on the device and we could send those back up and put them together in order to the cloud when we got cellular connectivity, when we regained it it basically allowed us to get 59 plus data points per minute. And that one is a lot of times due to rounding. So we're very effective at getting data into a database, which is really the largest challenge in agriculture. I think you've got the oldest and probably largest industry on the planet with the least amount of digital data. And it's not born, farming is, agriculture is not born digital, so we have to convert it digital. And that's where the opportunity lies, and so a lot of people don't quite understand how to get there. Yeah, I would say the to your point, the, the, where I'm trying to figure out is how you convert convert all the data to digital that you're talking about. I got to believe that the cell phone challenges are significant. I don't know how many. Uh, you say that some of the equipment since what I think you said 2002 or something has the ability to grab data, but you still need to replace their stereo, so to speak. To, to grab that data, but I don't know how many. What I was about to say is I don't know how many uh, how many farmers have you know older technology than 2002. Even I don't know if you're 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 plagued by that. Um, man, you got a lot of challenges. I don't. You could talk to each one of those. I would hope and, and, and give me some more insight. Yeah, so I'll talk the first one. I think it was the first one. Um, you know the the compatibility issue. There are we can go older than 2002. You have to have a let's use a a harvester, for example, you have to have a, a yield sensor in there, which is a combination of a few different sensors on the equipment. And those became, those became pretty common in the mid-90s. Um, and we can go backwards further. The problem is, is that you have to start making custom cables. So you don't know exactly how you're going to tap into the, the system to co collect the messages. Um, and it all becomes some one-offs. So we do go back further. There are custom cables. It's a little bit more expensive. Um, but if a farmer is going to install it themselves and self-install it, the device itself installs in about 15 minutes. And um, that universal plug came in in about 2002. Now, John Deere started shipping um, machines with a modem in them, I believe, in about 2012. And that was kind of that the early 2G modem in 2013. I think they moved it up to a 3G modem. And uh, 
Verizon's going to phase out the, the 3D, 3G data communications. Um, I, I think they're, they're sunsetting that in the end of 2019. So there's a, every cab, uh, every John Deere cab is going to have to have a, a new modem put into it um, in the not too distant future. And that's a big opportunity that we see for a way to upgrade um, to a system like ours. Well, I'd imagine some of the folks that are listening probably don't know the importance of this, but having read some of your material, uh, I know that uh, like some data you put out there, in 1980 farmers received about 31 cents per every dollar uh, spent on food by the consumer. And today I'm to, to understand that that number is about half. So I got to believe every bit of yield uh, it, that that they could maintain is a huge opportunity, particularly if you're going from 170 on average to 521 bushel. That's a huge difference. And it exists in every crop. It's not just corn. If you look at beans, it's the same way. I think the national bean average is, is upper 40s last year, but we routinely get fields that produce in the 80s. And when you look at canola, a lot of that canola will, will produce over 100 bushels up in Canada, but the national average there is the mid 40s. So this this phenomenon that we've observed in a few of these crops exists in almost every crop, and it's a way to start to identify what the best practices are and and utilize the data to help people start to um, improve and accelerate the knowledge about their own fields. So, are you also measuring soil depth or those those future opportunities? Right. And, yeah. And some of it depends on how modern your planter is. Um, in some of those planters, we are able to get to get what the depth is and the downforce. Um, it, it's not all of them because there's a wide range of equipment out there. But depending on the the really make and model of the equipment, there's some really really exciting things happening in in those markets where we're able to track more and more stuff every day. So if, if you're looking about out, if I'm looking at outcomes, here's what I'm gathering: like long term you're optimizing yields, whether it's 36,000 seeds per acre or 26 or whatever the case may be. Short term, you're pushing logistics against the, a fleet of machines. So you know how to keep those, those machines going uh, at an optimal level. Uh, and then you're also looking at, short term, you're also looking at yields as well to make sure that you're planting the right amount of seeds in accordance with the optimal level that you've already identified. Got a pretty fair look. This is coming from a guy that knows nothing about this. So is that a pretty fair summary, or, or, or are there other areas I miss? I'm sure you got a ton of other. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's a good summary. Another example I would use is that 10 years ago we would look at a farm as an enterprise, and so if I've got a thousand acres of corn, I take my my yield or my weight tickets from the trucks that I emptied at the elevator and I would divide that over all of my fields to figure out what my average was. I think in the future what we will do is each field will be its own P&L and we'll be able to keep a profit and loss detection from a <laughs> passive device, this data generated from a passive device. So a farmer can now look at their enterprise as a bunch of individual business units and there are some that, that maybe they shouldn't be farming. And I'll give you an example. Farmers really like to buy new equipment, and, and nobody brags about the small new tractor they bought. And what happens is farmers tend to buy this equipment, and then they tend to make some 
interesting decisions on what fields they're going to plant. And I've had this conversation with, with half a dozen people who have told me the same thing, because I can, I, can I can look at the fields that they're farming when I'm sitting there with them and saying, why are you farming these two fields that are 45 miles away? And I said, oh, we, well, we picked those up. We decided to rent those, and, and we had the equipment, so we wanted to make sure that we were able to get some more acres. And I can show them that the, the amount of transit time they have to get to those fields make them not a very economical decision for that particular farm. They should let somebody else farm those fields that's closer to those fields. And they should focus on, on keeping their core group of fields closer because at $180 depreciation per hour, it doesn't matter if you're driving or idling, um, the amount of time it takes you to get to that field if you're assigning real profit and loss to these fields is, is a very different ballgame than what they're used to looking at. Very interesting. So where does the farm mobile data store come in? So once we do our job correctly and organize this unstructured data into these electronic field records, the farmer looks at the data themselves and we make sure that they, they go through and they certify the data. So we, we collect all of this stuff off of the machine and then we put it into the electronic field record format. And then the farmer goes in and confirms that what we've got is correct. Sometimes there's calibration issues. So sometimes if a farmer doesn't calibrate their combine, they may get, you know, a thousand more bushels off of a field than what we recorded. And they're allowed to go back in there and enter the correct amount. And then we have the ability to rerun all of that data, giving the new information that we know to make it more accurate. So when we're looking at a yield map, we can go back in and rerun that data to have the actual amount of bushels on the field so we can get a more accurate picture of what's happening. Once they certify that data, it gets moved into our data store. Our data store is just like iTunes, except instead of us licensing um, music, our content is these electronic field records. And we put them available on a, on a map where buyers can go through and they can zoom in on certain counties and they can zoom in on certain attributes that they're looking for. So if I'm looking for corn that was planted in Iowa between April 1st and April 30th, I can run a query on that. And I can then see that there's 800 fields that appear within that query and I can make an offer to those individual farmers to acquire that data. Why would they want that data? I mean, just to, to, for compare and contrast? I mean, why it would I put a farmer and say, go ahead. It depends. Um, data is one of those interesting things where supply actually brings demand. So when we started this conversation, we were talking about trading entities. And I worked for several trading entities that would pay a lot of money to get um, information on, on the, the progress of the crops. Today, we use the USDA. So the USDA today puts out some, some um, reports that tell us how many acres have been planted you know, last week in the US. But by the time the USDA gets that data to the market, it's generally about three weeks old. So, and these are, these are market moving reports. This, this, for global supply and demand, the US sets the price for really global supply and demand for corn and soy and wheat and cotton. So these are very important numbers for global trade. And if we could get that data to the market, let's say the next day, instead of waiting three weeks, we're going to greatly eliminate the volatility that occurs in those futures markets. So that's just one example. The more common example that we've experienced thus far is buyers of the data tend to be large companies that have R&D 
um, departments that are maybe doing field trials on specific varieties, um, traits of, of crop, or um, some sort of crop protection that they might be putting on. Um, and generally those test plots, and we've probably all seen them, those test plots are, are pretty small and limited in size and scope. So when a research firm can come in and buy an entire field's worth of this specific variety, suddenly it accelerates their learning inside the lab. Um, one of them has told me that if they had five years of data, they thought they could accelerate their learning at the lab by 20 years because they have these full field trials. So that's really where we didn't anticipate that being a real strong use of data, but that's been our most popular one thus far as we continue to, to build a book, I'm going to say, of data in the data store. So it's kind of like Twitter being able to predict colds better than the CDC because they can get that data real time. So, so this is the way I understand it. You have farmers that'll 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 pay Farm Mobile. They'll pay you for their for to to use this uh, technology so that they can make decisions on their own data. But then there are also buyers that can pay the farmer for that data with respect to trading and research, et cetera. So it's like a win-win for everybody. Yeah, that's exactly right. So another one is we've done a lot of big data companies who are trying to acquire planting dates um, on, on crops so that they can more quickly identify from their satellite imagery what crops are being planted where. So what we're starting to see is our data augment a bunch of additional data layers. So an additional data layer might be there's, there's satellite imagery companies that have been around for years that try to predict yield on crops, and they're not very good at it yet. I think they will get good, and I think they're getting better. But as they have some ground truth data to help train the models, now we move into a whole new level of being able to help predict yield um, for any given crop on any place on the planet when you can start to combine these layers. And then you add in the weather layer, and if you've got planting date and commodity and variety type, and you've got weather, and you can track that from the day it was planted until the day it reaches maturity, and you've got satellite imagery, suddenly you have a pretty unique model to start to really get a feel for what the production numbers are going to be. Awesome. Hey, so if I'm listening and I want to explore Farm Mobile to a greater degree, uh, where can I find you? Where should I go? Where would you direct folks? Uh, my phone number, my mobile number is, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> um, uh, no, I would, you, can, you can absolutely explore farmobile.com, and then we also have a YouTube channel where we have quite a few videos, and we're on Twitter and, and Facebook. You know, we're, we're in all the normal places. Um, you shouldn't have to look very hard. Farm Mobile is F-A-R-M-O-B-I-L-E, so it's one word and one M. Um, it's pretty unique. All right, very good. We'll put that in the show notes. So i got to switch. I want to ask a few things. First thing is uh, I know you're, you're helping entrepreneurs in, in the Midwest. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Happy to. Okay, so I um, one of the one of the things that I do, and it's actually what I'm what I'm down here doing right now, is there's a group in um, the Midwest here. It's based in Kansas City called Pipeline Entrepreneurs. Pipeline Entrepreneurs is a company that um, it's an organization. It's a not-for-profit organization that helps entrepreneurs by taking them through a um, it's a year-long fellowship program, and it's really built not as um, the kind of um, incubator or accelerator, I'd say, where you have an idea and you might have a prototype. Um, Pipeline really focuses on, on entrepreneurs who um, 
have built the product, they've got revenue, and now they're ready to really scale up. And so that organization, uh, I sit on the board of that organization, and the Kauffman Foundation is a large supporter of that organization. And it's great. We work with companies in Nebraska and Kansas and Missouri, and every year there's a class of uh, between 10 and 12 entrepreneurs that get the opportunity to go through the program. The program links you up with mentors or national mentors. It links you up with a lot of capital, um, venture connections. Um, we do four modules, one every quarter roughly um, on a different topic. That's a three-day intensive. And we travel to different parts of the region. And then we have one module that usually goes to Boston or Chicago or somewhere a little bit outside our, our comfort zone. Um, introduces us to a lot of, of folks in the tech industry, and it's a really strong program for entrepreneurs here in the Midwest. So this is like Shark Tank for the Midwest. Are you, are you like uh, Kevin you know, O'Leary? You're like Mr. Wonderful? It's, it's, uh, that's, a, that's a good point. It, it's not Shark Tank at all because um, we don't fund the companies, and a lot of accelerators will take 5% of the equity in the company to go through the program. We do not do that. We basically... We don't take any equity in the companies. I say we pipeline does not take any equity in the companies because we think that that changes the the motivations. We're here strictly as um, support and a network to connect you with other high growth entrepreneurs in the region. So this is more a volunteer type of thing for you, just because it is. you care. Yeah, yeah, it, it's exactly right. It helped me. I went through the program in 2009, and it dramatically changed uh, my previous company and and our trajectory. And so it's it's very near and dear to my heart. Nice. All right. Hey, I got to go through a lightning round. Great. And this is this is get to know Jason Taji right now. I'm, I've been looking forward to this, so I'm ready. Okay. Ready? <laughs> yes, sir. All right. Here here here's the first question. What would you tell yourself at 20? What advice would you give yourself? Wow. Um, at 20, I would say that you know absolutely nothing and listen, but be smart about it. That's a bad answer. Let me let me try it again. <laughs> no, that's a good answer. But good no, well, so so I'm thinking when I was 20. When I was 20, I was still in school and I was doing all kinds of you know, you just you just change. Um, I would say that I would encourage myself to take more risk than I do because all you have left is regret um, if you don't put yourself out there. And 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 I'm not a huge fan of playing it safe. All right, what would you tell yourself at 30 then? Does it change? Now you're at, at twenty nine. Twenty nine is when I started my first company. So yeah, I think I think at twenty. No, I think I've, I'm going to change my answer again, Al. So I'm totally screwing this up. I would say at twenty, <laughs> I would say find something that you care about and learn as much about that as you can on somebody else's dime. Pretty good answer. And then, and then 30, I would say, what would you say? Yeah, at thirty, I would say take what you've learned and figure out a way to make it better. Nice. Good answer. All right. Tell me the day in the life of a CEO for a startup. What does your day in the life look like? Uh, get up pretty early, make sandwiches for my kids before they go to school, um, come to work. Generally, you know, it's meetings upon meetings upon meetings, customers in the office. Um, it is it is sales calls. I, I, I do a lot of sales too. I've got a couple of sales staff of two, but I like to participate in those as much as I can. I like to get feedback. Um, I like to be hands-on. I like to really be involved in product. I like to know from our um, customer success team what the calls were in the past couple of days and, and what are we seeing consistently and what are the problems. So I think 
we have a really strong culture of, of really trying to create the best product possible. And, you know, that feedback loop is so incredibly important to us and our, our customers um, letting us know the good, the bad, and the ugly is, is always greatly appreciated. I'm going to veer off from you for a second and ask this question, but what's the biggest myth in farming right now? Yeah, the biggest myth in farming right now is that there are corporate farmers all over the place and they're growing um, food that's not healthy for us. That's the biggest myth by far. Farmers are, look, they live on the land and they are good stewards of the land. If you've got something, Al, that you're going to pass on to your kids and your kids and your kids, the last thing you're going to do is is do something that's not going to be healthy or not going to be sustainable or not going to be, you know, in the best interest of the family. A lot of these family farms that we work with, you know, you've got a hundred years of history on that soil. And it's really interesting to me at how incredibly um, focused a lot of these farms are on maintaining that soil. They know that the soil is what makes the plants and the ability to really start to use things like cover crops that are crops that they put in the fall and they, they do it not to harvest those crops, they do it to regenerate the soil and to not have as much runoff over and erosion over the winter time. And there's just so many unique things happening out there. And for some reason, a, a lot of people look at farmers like, you know, in a, in a light that paints them as not good stewards of the land and it couldn't be further from the truth. You answered that awful quickly. I got to believe you're very passionate about that answer. <laughs> I, I am very passionate about that answer. Look, we've outsourced our food production, like we talked about earlier. You know, the U.S. has outsourced its entire food production and the world primarily to a group of, you know, a couple hundred thousand people in the U.S. who are really good at it. Um, less than two percent of our population right now it lives on a farm, but they feed not only us but you know a massive amount of the world's population. So. It's, it's something that we get to choose with our checkbooks what farming practices we want to support. And I think that's the greatest thing that, uh, you know, that's the open market system and it's economics at its finest. That's a great answer. All right, back to Jason. What's the biggest failure, failure you've learned from? Boy, which one? Um, hmm. I got to believe you, you know, as many, you know, you've got two businesses that you, you've done, you, you've started on your own. I got to believe there's some failures in there someplace. Yeah, I'll give you a really good one. Um, back in the day of, remember the old blackberries, we, um, we decided that we wanted, so we were early on the mobile app end of things and all of our customers had blackberries and we decided that we wanted to, um, we decided that we wanted to build an app and we built a, an app and it was, it was a uh, pretty time consuming for us. And then we realized that when we were on different networks, we had to, even though it was the same BlackBerry phone, we had to build different, basically, we had to code different things for different phones on different networks and ended up chasing that thing for a long time. And then in 2009, really, when that iPhone came out and everyone kind of joked about where's the keyboard and that thing's never going to make it, what they did that was just console, write that code one time and it could work on all the, the devices. So... I'd say we put a lot of money and bet a lot of the company before on a technology that was gone right when we got deep into trying to chase it. Who inspires you? So many people inspire me. So, um, you know, we've got a really strong group of funders um, 
in, in Kansas City here, local people that support our business. And uh, there's a couple people there. You know, Ewing Cotton has a, um, uh, a legacy here in, in Kansas City. And so as he was growing his business, he was very supportive of a lot of local entrepreneurs. And at the time, there was one of those entrepreneurs whose name was Neil Patterson. And Neil Patterson and Cliff Illig are two Kansas City legends who started a company called Cerner. Um, I've been very fortunate to be able to have both of those gentlemen serve as mentors to me, and they're really kind of paying it forward. So I think I look at I look at Neil Patterson, I look at Cliff Illig, I look at while I didn't know Ewing Kaufman, I look and I can see what he's been able to pass on to others, and those others have been able to continue to carry the torch. And so I look up to a lot of people like that, and I would be absolutely remiss by not mentioning my parents. So, um, look, I look up to my parents uh, every day, and I'm thankful for the foundation that they gave me. Good answer. Hey, anything, any, any book that you'd recommend, any, any learning that you'd recommend to the listeners? Um, there's one that I really like. Um, I've read a couple of since, but there's one that's called, um, have you read The Inevitable? I have not. Um, i got to make sure I'm saying that right, but it's a great book that really just talks about the future and the future of what's to come. Some of the stuff is probably a little crazy, but for the most part, it is a really strong um, representation of, of how I see what the next, you know, 15 years could look like. All right. I got it down. I got one last question and we'll wrap it up. Every year, Jason and I take a trip to Napa together. He collects all the music. Do you like anything but country? That's, that's my last question. I do. I, I, I appreciate other forms of music, but <laughs> better than three chords in a story. <laughs> All right, fair answer. I, I have heard you added a few non-country songs, but most of it's country, I notice. I, I, would, I would reply back to you and ask you if you like anything other than um, 90s uh, rap. <laughs> rap? I like hard rock, usually. But, Hard rock. But I, okay. I, I'd like to I'd like to torment you with rap. That's what I'm doing. I'm thinking, what's the the Tupac song that you you dance to? California, California. See, it's right. fitting for the it's fitting for the trip. I got it. I got it. I'm thinking ahead. Hey, man, thank you for for being on the show today. I appreciate it. I got a lot of information. And now, anytime I want to ask you a question, I can go back to our podcast and 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 revisit it. So I I, I know exactly what you do every day. So thank you. Well, so one more thing. One more thing that we might put up there is that we've got about a million. So we've got about a million and a half EFR acres available in our data store, yep. and that's the data set that just keeps growing. So that's the stuff that people can purchase, and you know we think that that's going to grow quite substantially. So when we talk again in a year, I can tell you we've got 15 million acres. How many customers you got? We've got 800. We've got 800 paid accounts, and some of those have multiple units. So, um, and that's up from we were at about 400 at um, at the beginning of the year, but they weren't all paid. So, uh, we charged it first in 2017, and then so 2018 is our first year. We sell our product. This is another thing I didn't mention, which I probably should have for sure. Which is we sell a subscription. Um, it's $1,250 a year and it's on a three-year lease. So we get a three-year contract at $1,250 per year 
And the farmers who chose to monetize their data last year, because the farmers always get to choose if they want to sell it or not, um, they received on average about $3,100 back. Nice. So it's a gift that keeps on giving. It's the gift that keeps on giving. The cool part about data is you can sell it more than once. And so it's, it's just, it's truly like um, digital content from, from music where you could license it the same thing 20 different times. Very good. Hey, thank you for joining. You're terrific. I appreciate it. We'll get you back on some sometime in the future. But All right. Thanks again. I hope I didn't. I hope I didn't ruin this for you. No, this is fantastic. Love it. All right. Thanks, man. Appreciate thanks. it. Bye. See you. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcasts to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, over and out. Oh.